Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics, Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here with our special guest today, Dr. Jennifer Morse. Uh, I've known Jennifer for some time through our affiliation with the Acton Institute. She is the is the founder and president of an organization called the Ruth Institute, uh, headquartered in Louisiana. Uh, and the will uh, Jennifer, I'll let you articulate the the purpose and goal of the Ruth Institute in just a moment. But our listeners, I think, would also I think be interested to know you have an academic background. Uh, you have a PhD in economics, uh, taught at George Mason University for several years before uh, starting the Ruth Institute and moving into a, a ministry of uh, travel and speaking and writing, um, particularly in this area of uh, uh, serving particularly women who have been the victims of the sexual revolution. So we're also, we're also featuring your new book entitled The Sexual State, uh, which we'll get into more of the details on that as our discussion goes along. But first, tell tell our listeners a bit about what what is the Ruth Institute and what is its mission. Uh, the Ruth Institute is a global nonprofit organization that equips Christians to defend their beliefs about marriage and family and human sexuality, so that we can create a culture of lifelong married love. Um, and we do that through uh, events like this, uh, podcasts, website, uh, personal appearances by me, uh, and also publications and events that we put on. Okay, let's let's turn to your book here. I, I love the title of this, entitled The Sexual State. Uh, you've got a picture of the, on the cover of uh, what looks like a sort of uh, a view of the church, but it could also be at first glance a, a political institution. Uh, subtitled, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and Why the Church Was Right All Along. So tell our listeners, who are the victims of the sexual revolution? Give us some examples of this. What do what their lives look like? Well, yes, and this book opens with a whole series of vignettes of people who've been victimized by the sexual revolution. So uh, you, you, could, you could start with divorce, you know, and just think about uh, uh, children of divorce, who are always innocent victims of uh, of their parents' decisions, right? Um, you can think about abandoned spouses, people who wanted to stay married, um, but because of the law of divorce that we have in this country, uh, one person can end a, end a marriage unilaterally. Um, and so there, are, we we estimate there there may be as many as seventy percent of divorces have one party who's reluctant, you know, who would like to stay married oh, that, if they if many. they could, right? It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And actually, one of one of the uh, terrible ways that we victimize people is we don't even recognize that they exist. So nobody really asks the question: How many people? How many people would have liked to stay married? We don't really know. I mean, I have one number that somebody found by uh, in the process of studying something else. You know, so I don't really know. You know, but but that one number is like, whoa! It's enough. It's enough to be serious, right? You've got to take seriously the fact that. All, and, 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 you know, as soon as I said, when I do this in, in a, a live conversation, a live audience, you know, and I say, the reluctantly divorced, and I explain what I'm talking about, the person who wants to stay married, but their spouse ends the marriage, and that's the end of it, because one person can end it. When I say that in front of an audience, Scott, I always see people nodding their heads. You know, it's like everybody knows somebody that that's happened to. Yeah. And yet we have no name for it. We have no data on it. 
socially, politically, they don't exist, you know? So, and that's just one topic. That's just divorce. People who participate in the hookup culture and later regret it, people who move in with their boyfriend or their girlfriend and 10 years later figure out that they weren't really going to get married and, oh my gosh, I threw my whole life away with this person. You know, you never hear about that, Mm -hmm. but it happens all the time. Not to mention the people that the pro-life movement knows about, the women who get abortions and who regret their abortions, right? You know, so there are all these people who have in one way or another participated in the sexual revolution or their relatives have participated in it um, and and they have suffered and yet nobody talks about that side of it. The, the sexual revolution is just one glorious march into the future, you know, and it's all going to be wonderful. And if it's not wonderful yet, it just means we need more sexual freedom here. That's the answer, you know? And, and so in that sense, it's like a rolling revolution that the communists thought about, you know, that, that we're not there yet. So we have to double down and do more and do more and do more. That's what we're dealing with here. A little bit, let me be a little mo- bit more specific. Let's take the hookup phenomena. Um, I, yep. su- I suspect most people in our culture, I suspect, believe that as long as both people consent, that's, that's a case of no harm, no foul. Uh, right. So what, what exactly are the harms of the hookup phenomenon? So, okay, so first of all, that thing that you just said, yeah, everybody does think that if there's consent, no harm, no foul. But the whole theme of the Me Too movement has been that we don't really know what consent means. You know, that that sounds good on the chalkboard, right? But when you get right down to it, it's a very low bar. It's a very flimsy standard because if you've got a a significant um, uh, difference in power in the relationship, uh, what one person considers consent, the other person considers coercion. And we're seeing all kinds of cases of that, whether it's in Hollywood or in business or in the media or in the church, you know. That's everywhere. So I don't even accept that opening premise. And I would ask your listeners to question that premise too, right? Um, But the the other way that there are victims of the the hookup culture, it's been known for a long time, Scott, that that women, particularly like teenage girls, it's been studied, that teenage girls who have multiple sex partners are more likely to become depressed over their hookups. Right. That correlation has been there for a long time. It's been in the literature. And, you know, there are a few people who talk about it, you know, nutty people like us talk about it. But it's been out there long enough that if you were really serious about helping people, you would have taken that seriously and talked about it a long time ago. Right. Um, but, but, the, but the reason that the girls get depressed is because our bodies are actually meant to attach. We're meant to connect. We're meant for union and communion. Of course, Christianity understands that. That's the whole, our, our whole view of the cosmos is that the cosmos was created as an act of love and that every human person is, was made by God in love and for love. And we're all, we're all meant for union and communion. And so now we take this, this thing that's built into our bodies of sex that's supposed to be about union, communion, and, and creating a family. And we and we turn that into a consumer good. We're all supposed to be happy now, you know. <laughs> no wonder, no wonder people are depressed, you know. At, at the heart of the sexual revolution, like you said, is just as long as it's consensual, it's fine. And then another right. part of it is as long as you don't hurt somebody, it's okay. And yet, what you point out in your book, as I read the first few pages, is person after person, victim after victim, in stories that we never hear. 
How come we right. aren't hearing about these victims? Right. Well, but, but you, the stories that I tell in there, once I tell them, you recognize them, right? That's right. I mean, right. I mean, you, you know somebody that has had these kinds of things happen to them, right? But the, the reason we never hear about it is because the, 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 the point of, the, the point of a revolution is always the revolution itself. Okay. So, um, People who people who analyze leftist revolutions, you know, they'll tell you this. Um, the issue is never the issue. The issue is always the revolution. So that applies to the sexual revolution too, which, by the way, is not just a left wing thing, but, which I talk about in the book as well. But so 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 think of the sexual revolution as its own revolution, its own whole thing. If the point is to remake the world into your image, you know, and to create your fantasy ideology, you cannot allow these um, these counter currents to ever get uh, take hold. You know, you you can't be dissuaded by a little girl wetting her bed because she's upset that her mommy doesn't want her anymore. You know, you 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 can't you can't be slowed down by that kind of thing. So so the the people who've been harmed. And the evidence of harmfulness of the premises of the sexual revolution, all that has to be suppressed. All that has to be actively tamped down. Um, and, and that, I think, is the key to understanding the whole sexual revolution, is, is to see just how much of that we've all been subjected to. Let me ask you another question sort of on this. Part, part of, part, I mean, your, your book talks about the, the victims of the sexual revolution. But you also make the case that the the state, actually the government, has an interest in the sexual revolution, which I take it is where the title "the sexual state" comes from. Yes. So, can yes. you spell that out a little bit, a little bit more? Yes. So, the, the 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 premise of the book is that without the state, the sexual revolution wouldn't have wouldn't be what it is. The sexual revolution is not now and never has been a grassroots movement of people demanding condoms for fourth graders. Okay, I mean, of people demanding transsexual bathrooms. Really? People demanding gay marriage. We can see that today. We can see that, that how much that was orchestrated by left-wing foundations, by uh, political actors, by the media, you know, we can see how much that stuff has been orchestrated and really thrust upon us. Um, and, and what I do in the book is I look back to what I consider the three main ideologies of the sexual revolution. Uh, the idea that we should separate sex from babies, the idea that we can connect, we can disconnect sex and babies from marriage, and then the idea that, that the sex of the body is unimportant. Okay, so I call that the contraceptive ideology and the divorce ideology and the gender ideology. And if you look at each one of those things, what you'll see in the, in the history of the thing is that it wasn't a grassroots movement, that there were a handful of people, usually with some very wealthy backing, um, making this happen, driving it. And the way they had to drive it was to get the government to help them. So if you look at Roe v. Wade, for instance, and I'm sure a lot of your Listeners know this already because you probably have a lot of pro-life people, and pro-life people tend to know this history better than the average bear out there. But um, but Roe v. Wade came on the in the in the aftermath of Eisenstadt versus Baird, and Eisenstadt versus Baird was the aftermath of Griswold versus Connecticut. Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965 
removed the right of any state to have any kind of regulation on birth control or contraception. And so I spend a lot of time in the book going through the history of that and where that came from. That law that, that you know, that uh, regulated contraception within, within the state of Connecticut, that had been on the books for a long time. And the people who wanted to overturn it went into the state legislature every year, literally every year, starting in 1935. They were in the state legislature saying, we got to get rid of this law, blah, blah, blah. And the people who were fighting it were sort of ordinary, mostly immigrant Catholics saying, you know, if you take this, if you can't have any regulation on it, people are going to be having sex up the wazoo and we're going to have no moral standards whatsoever. It's going to be a mess. For 30 years, they beat that thing back. It was only when they got into the court that they were able, able to overturn it in the court. And, and so the, the ordinary people didn't want it. And that's what so, and, and, and in fact, that campaign to overturn those um, contraception regulations, that campaign was called by uh, uh, CBS News, described it as the Yale Project. The Yale Project, because Yale Medical School and Yale Law School they were the people who were driving the campaign to overturn all the regulation. And they were telling people, I, I'm sorry, I'm getting excited about this because it makes me so <laughs> upset. They, were, they, they, they went into court. They perjured themselves because they went into court. And they said, look, all we want to do is allow doctors to prescribe contraception to married women who have serious health problems. That's all we want to do. That's all we're talking about. The very day that they got their court decision, the very day that Griswold was handed down, they were already talking about the next step, which was overturning abortion laws. The very day they were talking about that. And so that's what I'm that's what I'm saying. Okay. This that's was helpful. this was not something normal people wanted, you know. And and without that piece in place, you guys, without that piece in place, none of the rest of the stuff would have happened. You can always get fired up on our podcast. I love it. And, ah. <laughs> and, and actually, I, I want you to know, and I was reading your book. I listened to your podcast. I've read a number of your books. Uh, we had you come speak at Summit. As I read this, I yep. thought, you know what? You you are angry, but in a righteous way. I could feel the emotion coming forward as you were writing this. Is that because you had new insights? Because we're seeing more victims than ever? What fired you up so much as you were writing this book? Well, the, the reason I'm fired up in general about the issue of the family is because, uh, well, it's something, it's something that I talked about when I when I lectured at Viola, actually. You guys had me come out and give a few talks at Viola. And I remember telling people about uh, when I became a mom, it was because we, we adopted a little boy from a Romanian orphanage, and then we gave birth to a little girl. Within six months, we had two kids. And our, our adopted son had been in an orphanage for over two years of his life. And then our little girl was born. So we get these two kids in, within six months. And you can see so clearly the kids need their parents. Kids need their parents. Our, our little boy was extreme condition. He was raised in a communist orphanage, minimal care. You know, we change his diapers a couple times a day, whether he needs it or not. You know, that's all kids really need. All right. So you have that experience and you go, whoa, kids need their parents. That means kids need their mom and dad to work together. That means it really 
kind of makes sense that you get married before you start this whole thing, <laughs> you know, which kind of means you probably should keep your flies zipped before you get married, you know, because yeah, that's going to be better for any kids that you might have because, you know, actually contraception fails sometimes, you know, so contraception doesn't really get yet. So you start putting the pieces together, Sean, and what you see is that traditional Christian sexual morality protected the rights of children to their parents. Mm. Now, that may not be what it was all about theologically, because there's obviously layers and layers of depth to what the Lord created in terms of male and female and creation and marriage and all of that. There's layers and layers of meaning to that, as St. Paul told us. But at the barest natural sociological level, traditional Christian sexual morality protected the rights of children. And doggone it, I've been writing about this since, since 2001, and things have gone from bad to worse mm. in terms of the ability of kids to be raised by their own moms and dads. And yep, it makes me mad. It really makes me mad to have people, people who will never be touched by it themselves, people who will never be harmed by it themselves, who will never pay the price themselves for them to continue to promote and, and advocate for this stuff that's causing enormous suffering among other people, yeah, it makes me mad. Well, <laughs> it really makes I, me mad. You know what, I, I, I've seen that in my own father who really began responding to the sexual revolution kind of in the 70s and 80s, and he would always say, God's commands are for our good. And I saw that yep. righteous anger, and I think there's a place for that. So I just want to affirm, I think your voice is so important. Let me, let me ask you this, the... At the heart of your book, The Sexual State, you're saying that the contraceptive ideology, gender ideology, and divorce ideology are not natural. We know they're false. So the state right. has to step in and control this. Are we coming yep. full circle where people are actually believing these ideologies and we won't need the state? Or well, is yes. it so yes. contrary to human nature that we'll always need the state to propagate them? Well, you know, in, in one sense, what you just said is, is, is correct. You know, that, that if the state stopped propping it up, I don't know what would happen, right? But part of the way they prop it up is with tons and tons of propaganda. And I think many Christians, particularly many Christian parents, um, are, are horrified by the amount and intensity of the propaganda that we, that we're subjected to. And, and some of it's subtle and some of it's blatant and in your face, you know. Um, but but the core idea is is the first thing that you said, Sean. The core idea um, is that uh, kids actually do need their parents, and if you just leave people alone, they'll figure that out. They'll see that, <laughs> you know. And and men and women are different, and and if you say nothing, people will figure that out. They'll see it. It'll just be in your face, you know. And and sex does actually make babies. <laughs> Even in California, sex makes babies, right? So, and if you leave people alone, they will put two and two together and see that sex makes babies. So if you want to build a world where sex doesn't make babies and where men and women are interchangeable and where kids are really going to be fine with, with or without their parents, if you want to make that world, you've got to be in people's face all the time overriding all this evidence that they're going to naturally stumble across, right? And so that's what we're dealing with now, you guys, is just decades, literally by now, decades of very intense propaganda uh, convincing us that, you know, if, that, that if I as a woman 
want to stay home and be taken care of by my husband, that there's something wrong with me for wanting that. You know? mm-hmm. And then if I stay with my husband for the sake of my children, that there's something wrong with me for wanting that, you know? Um, so, so the, 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 Propaganda is having its effect. There's no doubt about that. We, we simply cannot say, well, it's going to collapse by itself because it's so irrational. That's not true. We got to push in order for it to collapse. <laughs> but we got But uh, I see my book as, as telling people where to push. Where mm-hmm. are the critical weak points? Where are the, the, the loose joints where if we give it a good swift kick, it'll all go down, you know? Um, and, and, and if you buy the book from me, by the way, you can, you can buy it at Amazon and all that. But if you, if you go to the RuthInstitute.org and buy the book, uh, first of all, we'll come autographed. <laughs> and second of all, um, we have the, the, at the end of the book, there is the manifesto for the family, a 15-point plan for, for retaking the family. We have turned that into a pamphlet, and that pamphlet will be inside the book if you order it from us. And so you'll, you'll have that in your hand. Mm manifesto for the family this is what needs to change um and and so you can you can read it in the book or you can get the pamphlet or you know but we're not fooling okay. around no I, it, it, <laughs> it not fooling it, around you it, guys it, it, it doesn't take much to get that from reading your book um yeah <laughs> let's let's help i'm gonna help our listeners understand your chapter on the gender ideology a little bit more yeah w- what do you mean by that that term, and how do you see that ideology playing out in the broader culture? See, the gender ideology, you guys, this is a, since you're part of a, um, of a theological school, people will know what I mean when I say this. The gender ideology is a manifestation of Gnosticism. <clears throat> it's a modern form of Gnosticism because it's an attack on the human body. It's basically saying the fact that we're male and female, that's a big cosmic mistake of some kind. Hold it. It's a hold, cosmic. In, tell, tell our tell our listeners what you mean by that Gnosticism. Yeah, Sean and I get that, but yeah, 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 yeah. So, so Gnosticism is one of the oldest and most persistent heresies of uh, and enemies of Christianity. And and in this particular form, what it, what people are saying is, you know, physical existence is not a good thing. Um, and and we have we the elite the chosen ones we have the secret knowledge which is where the word gnosis comes from it's Greek for knowledge we have a secret knowledge that will allow us to transcend the body and to transcend all of this the evils of creation you know um, and and in our time the fact that we're male and female is considered evil it's considered unjust right um, the left considers it an affront on their concept of equality, the fact that we're men and women. Men and women can never be really equal, right? Because the differences are profound and deep. And people on the right, I'm telling you, my, some of my libertarian market friends, some of the people we might encounter at the Acton Institute from time to time, you know, um, they resent male and female also because they're very uncomfortable with the idea that you can't make a baby by yourself. You absolutely have to have another person involved in that. And so their whole individualism thing is upset by that. And so they think it's okay to go buy babies, buy eggs, buy sperm. Not Acton, not the Acton Institute itself. I don't want to good, mislead good, anybody. Yeah, but, good, but, good to be clear but, about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> but, but some of our free market friends 
see no problem with a market for sperm and a market for eggs and a market for surrogacy and ultimately a market for babies. They see no problem with that, see. Um, and so, so in, in both cases, the, the fact that we're male and female, which is written into the cosmos, right, that God, God was not making a mistake. I mean, how could you believe that if you were really a Christian? How could you believe that, that male and female was a, an oversight or that, that Jesus being a man was somehow a coin toss? He could have been a woman instead, you know? I mean, uh, all of this kind of feminist theology, feminist ideology um, ha- has at its root a resentment of male and female. And so the different manifestations of the gender ideology, um, I think that's the common root. And that's why a whole bunch of things that don't seem like they fit together, that's what holds them together, I think, you guys. You know, um, the whole way in which feminism and transgenderism are in conflict with each other in some respects, right? This common root of resenting the body uh, is, is, is what... Is, is what they have in common. And until they're willing to deal with that, they're going to be in conflict with each other. That's a really insightful point that that biblical truth that we are body and soul has just been lost yeah. on our wider yeah. culture today. I think because of your background in economics, one of the, the observations that I love that you make is how you show how the sexual revolution is tied up with economics. And in particular, you show how this isn't just a battle of ideas. But there's actually built-in incentive for people in business, media, the university, and in other areas to continue harmful policies that actually hurt children. So could you spell out that connection for us and maybe some things we could do in response? Yes, yes. Well, that, that, that's tough to take, actually, to, you know, when you when you really think about that. And that's the answer to your earlier question. Will it, will this all fall apart by itself because it's so irrational? Gee, there are a lot of people making money off of it, you know, and there are a lot of people who's, um, who have a lot um, intellectually and emotionally invested in the world as it is now. And, and the, the simplest point that I could make about this, and, and I say this as a career woman, as a woman with a PhD, as a woman who, you know, didn't have my first child until I was 38. Um, the entry into the professions in our culture depends on postponing childbearing. So think about that for a minute. If you want to get, if you want to become a doctor or a lawyer or a PhD or a scientist, if you want to excel in the professions, you really have to put off having kids. So what that means is that if you've got two women who are equally gifted and, and one says, I value my kids and the other says, I value my career, the woman who values her career, is her career is going to take off compared to the woman who values her kids. And that's the woman who is going to be more visible in the culture. That's the woman who's going to be more likely to be on the Supreme Court and more likely to be the star newscaster, right? And, more, and, and the, the woman who values her kids she may have a fine job and a fine career, but she's going to be a competitive disadvantage compared to the woman who doesn't have her first child until she's 40 or something, right? And so that all by itself with nothing else, if there was nothing else going on, that all by itself tilts the playing field towards the culture being continually impressed by how wonderful the sexual revolution is because the people in the who are most visible and occupy the positions of power and authority in, 
and, and who have the biggest microphone. These are people who uh, postponed childbearing, which most likely they didn't do by living like nuns and monks until they were 40. You know, that's most, most likely, you know, they, they participated in some form of um, contraception mm-hmm. plus abortion, you know? Yeah, and, and so when you look at that, it, it kind of makes sense why some of the people in the media get so angry, why they're so upset um, when, when pro-life women say, hey, over here, pro-life women, <laughs> we count too, you know, they, they, yeah. they tend to discount them. Yeah. I, I, one of the parts I love is toward the end of the book uh, where you, you're pretty strong in encouraging victims of the sexual revolution to tell their story. Uh, yes. I, I suspect we have some of our listeners here who would, who I think would correctly uh, consider themselves victims of the sexual revolution who need to tell their story. How, how would you en- encourage them to do that? How should they go about doing that? Well, we, we have something on our website, the Ruth Institute website. We have something called Tell Ruth the Truth, uh, which is a blog where people can submit their stories and, you know, 700 words or less or whatever and tell what happened to them. And that can be anonymous. As, it can be as anonymous as you want. Um, and we'll put it up there and people can see it. Um, it's a great, so great that's place one, to start. That, yeah, that, that's one simple way to start. Um, and, and there are other things coming out now. Um, a friend of mine wrote a book called Primal Loss, which is a compilation of stories of adult children of divorce. Um, and that is a, that is a gut wrenching, powerful book. So that's, that's another example. But at the, at the level, the ordinary person, you know, driving down the freeways in California, what I, what I'd like you to think about is that when these issues come up, um, don't be afraid to tell somebody, you know what? I tried that. And it really didn't work. And, 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 I, and I think you guys, you guys teach, so you know our millennials really respect authenticity. Hmm. And they mm-hmm. believe stories, right? They believe that. And, and they, they care about testimony. So your testimony, you may be embarrassed that you did whatever you did, you know, or that didn't go according, you know, and you, you know it wasn't what God wanted for you and you're ashamed and embarrassed or whatever. But, but by telling a young person, you know, look, I did it. And I would have been better off if I had done what God wanted me to do in the first place. <laughs> that would have been. You don't know what kind of impact you might have on a person in your life. So I would really encourage people to just have that on their hearts in your daily life. Um, and, 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 and more broadly, I, I think that we can and need to begin forming an activist cadre of people um, to, to speak out in a systematic, organized manner. And if anybody's interested in that, Send a send an email to info at ruthinstitute.org and we'll get you signed up. Now that's 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 really helpful because I think there are, I'm sure there are a host of women who are listening to this who who really resonate with what you're saying and and just are looking yes. for an outlet to tell their story. So I'm very very <laughs> appreciative the you know to have the website of the Ruth Institute uh, and these other mechanisms available to them. Well. Uh, Jennifer, this has been so helpful, so insightful. We, we commend your book uh, to our, our listeners called The, the Sexual State. Uh, it's just incredibly insightful stuff. And uh, we so, so appreciate the work of the Ruth Institute in, uh, in serving and serving well uh, those who have been victimized by the sexual revolution. So thanks so much for coming on with us. And for our, our, our prayers go out for your continued work and the, 
the work of the Ruth Institute. Well, thank you so much for having me on, guys. It's been great to have you with us. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Jennifer Morris and the Ruth Institute, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.